Andrew is doing this month, but then starting in February, I'm doing the first three weeks of February, six to seven, come get dinner, come stick around. It may be stuff you've heard before, because I'm going to kind of expand on uh, uh, the story of, of my great-great-grandparents, you remember, who went to Africa as missionaries, because that will be leading right up to GIC, and, and I'll have a bunch of their letters and stories and stuff to talk about. So six to seven on Wednesdays. But for the next three weeks, we're going to talk about like Paul said, the Desert Fathers. What the heck is that about? Monks. What the heck is that about? These are some guys that I found a few years back and have just been fascinated by. They are some of the first ones who set out to say, what does it mean to live the life that, that Jesus said to live? How do I go out and live the Great Commandment? How do I love God? How do I love other people? <clears throat> How do I love myself? What does all of that mean? And, and so we think about monks, and we think about monks, and we say... Oh, they're the guys who, like, they live in a cave, they don't talk to anybody, they've, they've isolated themselves from the world to take an easy way out. Well, we'll see that to some degree they would agree with you. They said, you know, it really, it's easier to try to live that life if I sort of remove myself from all of the distractions, but you can live that life of love God, love other people, love myself in a serious way, in the city, in, in community, and so they, they weren't just isolated folks who did stupid aesthetic, aesthetic things, and, and they would even point out that, you know, the guy who goes and lives on the pillar for 40 years, he's missed the point, right? They would say that about each other. Uh, a lot of what we think of today goes back to these guys. They, they, they sort of are the foundation of, I guess, a lot of the Orthodox tradition, the Eastern traditions. But a lot of the folks that we rely on, John Wesley read the, the Desert Fathers, right? And, and they can show us a lot about what does it mean to love? What does it mean? And so the guys we're going to talk about are, we're looking, we're going the way back machine. Third century, fourth century, fifth century, the desert of Egypt, right? That's a hard thing to put ourselves into, what kind of a place that looks like. Um, but that's kind of where these things started. You know, they were in the Nile Valley. These were the, the, the people who really are the founders. And, and it's an amazing thing to me to think about the time frames that we're looking. Third century, that's a long time ago, right? But as far removed as it is from us, you know, 1,800 years, 1,700 years, Think about the fact that we, we're calling them the, the forefathers, the early ones to understand what Jesus was saying. This is still 300 years after Jesus. Right? So these are all things that take place over a long period of time. They're ideas that, that you just kind of ruminate on and, and you work through. And maybe that's why, why in the Orthodox Church they really only in the 1950s settled on what they consider the canon to be. They think about things for a long time, you know. <laughs> they want to be sure about them. So, if you ever want to take a real quick look at something, this is a fabulous, fabulous, fabulous book. This, this set me down a path that, that you know, I, I've, I've read this book maybe a dozen times now. Ruth Bondi was a professor over at, at um, Candler. Uh, I and mean, Roberta Bondi, I'm sorry, she wrote this, and she wrote a couple others. This is the best of what she's written, I really think. But it sort of sets out <clears throat> to say, how do I love God, how do I love other people, and then how do I love myself, how are all of those tied together, 
And how does that fit into what we're charged to do, what Jesus told us to do? It comes back over and over to the Great Commandment where Jesus said everything else comes out of this. So, so this is kind of where I start from. There are a couple of other great collections that I'll talk about as we go along because it's an amazing thing how much for a bunch of guys living out in the desert in caves that we have today of what they had to say. So how we'll sort of put things together, this, this, this sequence, is we're going to start out today and kind of get an idea about who these people were, what did they think about, um, just kind of the, the foundations, and then the next two weeks we'll look at, at two pretty important topics to them. One was about love itself. How do we understand it? What, what helps us to love? What keeps us from being able to love? What inside us gets in the way? And then we'll talk about that, that journey that they kind of go on and how, you know, as y'all have had a, a, all of your prayer requests, your, your prayers, your thanksgivings, your, your, your concerns, that was a core part of who they were. And, and I think that, that if you, as you see how their community fits together, you'll see how it's reflected in this group here, right? We're the beneficiaries of all of this. So we're going to meet the Abbas. The Abbas, the Desert Fathers. And this is not this kind of Abba, okay? <laughs> we're not talking that. There is no Swedish glamour rock going on. Was that Swedish or Danish? I can't remember. Swedish. Danish. Swedish. Danish. Swedish. I can't remember. Scandinavian. We'll go with that. Uh, cheesy. None of that. So all of this movement is, is, you know, there's always been people who went out to the desert because it's interesting. We say, well, St. Anthony started it all when he went out to the desert and began studying with monks who were already there. Okay. How did he start it then? But he's the one who really we look at as <clears throat> the founder of this, this idea, this way of living, this way of thinking. Anthony was, the, was, was an Egyptian. He was an heir to farm. Moderately wealthy, not hugely wealthy. But in, in worship one Sunday, he heard the story of the rich young ruler that said, how, how do I attain all of this? And Jesus said, you need to sell what you have and, and you know, give it away. And he thought, hmm, that seems to apply to me. And so he sold most of what he had at that point. He kept enough to care for his sister, put her in the care of some, some women, and endowed her so that she would, would have, have funds, and then went to the desert. He lived with uh, uh, some, some solitary folks who were already there and, and began to think on things. He became kind of the model of that solitary life, though people were attracted to him and his way of life. And, and a great crowd built up around him, and he founded a monastery as a result, and then ran away. He's like, okay, let's get those community going. I'm going over here. Because there was too much stuff getting in the way for him, for his, for his kind of, of way of thinking at that point. Pacomius set up the first real monastery, as we think, a community that was intentionally built around a group of people coming together to try to live in love together. Now, Pacomius was a pagan. Pacomius began, he, he grew up as a pagan. He was volunteered, drafted into the Roman army, 
and, and all of the draftees, the conscripts, were locked in the room and not allowed to leave and basically not fed. They were prisoners, right? And a group of Christians would come and minister to them. They would bring them food because just because they were conscripts does not mean that the Roman army was feeding them. And, and he said, if I make it through this, I'll become a Christian. From his point of view, his understanding at that instant of what did that mean, it meant somebody who was going to go and take care of people to, to help those who were in, in distress. And then from there, he grew into understanding uh, of salvation and, and then created the first monasteries to live in community. And all of this is going on, 270, 280, 290, 300, Constantine's another 25 years, right? So this is before uh, Christianity becomes official, and while there's still here and there fairly serious persecution, I think one of the things that we, we need to remember about all the persecutions that we hear about in the early centuries is that they were by and large localized, even though where they happened they were pretty nasty. You know, they, they it wasn't it wasn't some you know grand crush everybody across the empire. Right? It was it was in particular places at particular times there was persecution, but there was still persecution going on coming from from both tribes as well as from the Roman establishment. So the goal of the monks was to live out the life that Christ taught in the Great Commandments. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. This is the greatest and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law. What does that mean? What does that mean to love one another as I have loved you? What does that mean to fully love God and then love my neighbor, oh, let's not forget that second half of that statement, as myself. I'm, and this was a real core part. We often think about monks as being uh, uh, overly dramatically humble, kind of falsely humble. Okay, and we'll talk a lot about humility next week. But a core part of their understanding was I'm created by God. I am created in the image of God and therefore need to love myself. And we'll talk about this. And, and that love of loving other people ties back to enable me to love myself as well as loving myself enables me to love other people. And all of this rolls into the whole notion of, of how can I love and serve God. So this is, this is really what they were getting at. They felt like to really be the humans that God created meant that this is the life where we, we are, are destined to live, that we're expected to live. Now, where were they? This is the Nile, and the, kind of going into the Mediterranean. We'll blow it up. And they, were, they had uh, large settlements, kind of towards the, the Nile Delta, but there was also a bunch of folks, oh, back up, back up, too many buttons. So they also had a bunch down farther in the Nile, but a lot of, of them were, were higher up, right? So the farther up the Nile you went, the more isolated the communities tended to be. The further down the Nile, the more there were monasteries, the more there were, we'll talk about the middle way. So this is kind of the world. And, and this is, okay, so you keep going down there, you get a desert, desert, out in the middle of the desert. There really had three different ways that they, they kind of approached things. 
We think of monks as solitary, hermits. This is the solitary lifestyle, the anchorite lifestyle. And, and they really followed Antony in going and living on their own. Now, just because they live a solitary life does not mean that they're not interacting with everybody. People come to see them. They still look after each other. They still feel like welcoming people is a huge part of that love. It's not like they wall themselves in and don't talk to anybody, right? But they do feel like that in order to live the life they need to, maybe they need to get rid of the stuff that gets in the way. And maybe it's stuff, and maybe it's temptations. Maybe, maybe that, that they feel an inner lack of something, and they just are not able yet to be around people. And they come and go. Most folks aren't one thing all the time, right? So the other end of this spectrum is the Cenobites. The Cenobites live in monastic communities, Pacomius, that kind of thing. They create a community. They might, they might build a self-sufficient community. Self-sufficiency is a huge part of this as well. You earn your own way, right? And then there's this middle way. The monks would live in their cells, their cells, their caves, their little huts. They would live this spare way of life, far enough apart from everybody to have solitude, but close enough that they could kind of keep an eye on each other, and they could tell, and far enough apart might be three or four miles, right? But they could keep an eye on each other and know when one of the brothers was in need or when one was ill or when they needed an extra encouragement and close enough that they could come together for worship but far enough apart that they could have that, that time of prayer and solitude that they craved so much. And um, Amun did this in, around Cetus and Nitri, which are a little kind of the middle section on the map as well. But Abba Amun was one of the, the forebears of this way of life. So they weren't all in a community or all off in a cave. They were often kind of a mix and they would move back and forth. But they were all still trying to figure out how can I do what I need to do to be the person that God wants me to be. Now, the cell was the place. That was their home. They, they, they had just bare bones stuff. Right? They tended to not have stuff. And, and they would sit, they would contemplate. Manual labor was a huge part of what they did. It, they, they made baskets. Um, that was a lot of it, was plaiting baskets. That was a big industry for them. Um, and it wasn't just a matter of, oh, I need to pay the bills. Yeah, I've got I to gotta pay the bills. I've got to you know, support myself. But they looked for sorts of labor, because labor was important to them, but sorts of things that they could do that were repetitive, that would enable them to be in prayer as they did it. Continual prayer. Pray always, we're told. So how can I do that? That was one of the things that they tried to approach. Uh, okay, so I have lots of quotes here, and, and these are the main thing I want to share with you as we go through. The Apothecamata um, Patrium is a collection of the sayings of the monks. There's kind of two different versions. There's one version that's organized by who said it. And there's one that's organized by what they talked about, but they're 80% overlap. Two collections, same name, just to make it easy, right? Um, 
And, and these are the, the collected sayings that were handed down over the centuries. And you look at them, and some of them you look at it, and you go, what? They're kind of like Zen stuff. But they're small pieces of, of wisdom. And they almost all begin that somebody went and asked for a word, or asked the, the Abba for something. And, and people would go to these monks and, and ask for, for guidance to, to help them out with something that was bugging them. And part of the, the idea of the Abbas, that is to say the older, venerated, um, more experienced, those people who were seen as, as spirit-filled and wise, was they would speak truth, right? And they would kind of see through what was being asked to what was not being asked. The QBQ, question behind the question. And her brother came to set us and asked Abba Moses. We'll meet him in a minute. Asked him for a word. The old man said, go sit in your cell, and your cell will teach you everything. Go and stick to what you've been taught. Pray. Do your work. And it'll come to you. Right? Don't go looking for quick answers. And, and the key with all of these is, you got to think about it and say, well, how does this, what is it that I can, what can I take from this? What can I take from this word? The Abbas and the Amas, the Amas, the, the, the women of the desert. Now, we don't have a lot of what they've written because the guys wrote it down, right? And the guys collected it. And they didn't mix with the women, so they didn't bother to go get what they had to say. But there are a few of the women of the desert that we have their sayings as well. Uh, some of them were kind of odd. Um, Mary of Egypt decided she didn't need clothes and so she wandered the desert naked and I'm like wait a minute it's, it's called desert you're going to get kind of burned but, um, but the, the, there, were, there were monasteries for the women as well though not nearly so many now what is it these are actually Palestine can you see there's a monastic cell and there's another one Right, so this is Palestine rather than in, in <coughs> Egypt, but uh, and there's a ladder. You see, there's a ladder to get up the one. How'd y'all like to go visit? Visit the sick when they live there, right? Um, they purposefully, when they wanted solitude, went to places where they were gonna, by golly, get it. <coughs> so this is the approach to Anthony's cave. So Anthony went to the desert. A group built up around him. He founded a monastery, and then he left. He moved to a cave. This is the way to his cave, and this is Anthony's cave, right? From the the early fourth century, where where we know that's where he was. And then there's monasteries that are founded. This is St. Catherine's, which is one of the very oldest monasteries and has one of the greatest libraries of ancient books that there is. This is in the the Egyptian desert. St. Catherine's claims to have the burning bush. Okay? The one. St. Helena, Constantine's mom, went on tour after Constantine came to power and said, I think that's the one. <laughs> Just like she said, oh, there's the cross! You know, so you got to get a grain of salt. But they do have a particular bush that has been living a long time and it's bright red at particular times of year. But this is a monastery that was built up for a long, long, I mean, it goes back to, to the 5th and 6th century. Okay, this door, that's a recent thing. This is the old door. <laughs> so you came and knocked, they let you in. 
but first you had to get there. <laughs> but it was a community that would live unto itself, and they would support themselves, and they would care for each other, and, and, and they felt like they needed to be isolated to, to learn to grow. Now, we've talked about the fact that there's all these writings that have come down to us, lots in Coptic, some in Greek, some in Syriac. Uh, the Apostle Gamanopatria is, is really the core. There's also things like St. Athanasius wrote really the first of the biographies that we think of, the life of Antony. And then there's stuff like St. Barsanuthius, you know, 1,500 letters. He was one of the ones who kind of walled him in. He didn't talk to people, but he answered letters. People would correspond with him, and they would send him a letter, and he'd send them back. And they'd send him a letter, and he'd send them back. So they did long correspondences with Barsanuthius. So let's meet a couple of these people and some of the things that they said, and you'll kind of get a picture for, for how they thought about things, and then we'll look at what they really said about love and prayer and, and, and living that life. Next week, Antony, like we said, was an Egyptian uh, heir to a farm. He was the original solitary. He's the father. And, and the artwork that portrays these people is, as you might think, it looks like Orthodox icons because they really have continue to have a bigger place in the Eastern Church than the Western Church. We've kind of maybe in, in breaking apart from, from the East have maybe lost some of these connections. But, but like I said, folks like Wesley read what they had to say. So Pombo asked Anthony, what ought I to do? This is one of my very favorites. And, and in fact, last week I was teaching my class. Um, Maxie Dunham has a book uh, called Going on to Salvation that is what did Wesley think, right? And it's a really good study. And we were starting it last week, and, and I'm reading what Wesley had to say about going on to salvation, and, and the whole notion of salvation, and, and it was just tying exactly in. Because Pombo asked Anthony, what ought I to do? And the old man said to him, do not trust in your own righteousness, do not worry about the past, but control your tongue and your stomach. <laughs> Think about that though. What does that mean? What is he talking about? He's not talking about, you know, don't go over to Golden Corral and pick out. He's talking about pay attention to what you say and to the appetites that drive you to do things. Right? Pay attention to what lures you into different directions. It's not, you know, the buffet, it's desires for things that don't that don't fulfill me. Right? So that's what he's talking about. Anthony said, A time is coming when men will go mad, and when, when you see someone who's not mad, they'll attack him saying, You're not mad like you're not like us. You are mad, you're not like us. And that seems like, you know, you look all around us, it's a bunch of crazy people. And the crazy people are attacking the people who aren't crazy, saying, Y'all are nuts. But it's it's just the world turned upside down. Now, Anthony's monastery is kind of an interesting story. In the Egyptian desert, Anthony's monastery was found in the 4th century, built up around it, and, and as you might expect, they built one on top of one on top of one on top of one, and the current monastery there, the chapel, was built in the 15th century. And recently, uh, this was a story out of National Geographic a couple years ago, that they were excavating, and they found beneath the floor of the 15th century church an 8th century chapel. Wow, that's cool. Rather than restore it, let's dig it up, too. Right? They dug through and found monastic cells from the 4th century. So it's been in that place for a long, 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 long time. And, and that's really cool. All of these monasteries, all of these places in the desert 
hold things. They, they're a great place to preserve all this old stuff. Arsenius. Arsenius was, was known for being very stern, very, very kind of a, a dour guy, but he also was known for, for prayer and known for crying over, over the, the trials that people have, the, the, the sins that he sees, but not just, oh, I feel so bad because you're bad. It's, it's, he feels bad with people. He, he cries with people. He's known for tears. Arsenius is, is the one in white, right? He was uh, a Roman. He was tutor to the emperor's children. And he came to know Christ. He left the palace and became a solitary, very much a solitary. He, was, he didn't talk. He didn't talk so much. Um, the other one here is Macarius, and we'll talk about him in a second as well. But Arsenius... While he was living in the palace, Abba Arsenius prayed to God in these words, Lord, lead me in the way of salvation. And a voice came to him saying, Arsenius, flee from men and you'll be saved. Now, one of the things that they would take from this is they're not saying everybody flee. They're saying, like the story of the rich young ruler, this is the thing that you need to do right now. Having withdrawn to a solitary life, he made the same prayer again, and he heard a voice saying to him, Arsenius, flee, be silent, pray always, for these are the sources of sinlessness. That's what he needed to do. It's how he could approach his life and focus on that love, focus on God. Now, I think what they would say is that there's an aspect of that for each of us, that time to, to step back and to be silent and to pray but they're not, he's not saying that this is the way for everyone. He, he, he would encourage people who needed this to go that way, but not everybody. John the Dwarf is one of my favorites. John the Dwarf came to the desert in the mid-300s. He was 18. He stuttered under uh, Amois for a long time. He was Arsenius' teacher when Arsenius came to the desert. right? And, and so many people came around him that he dug a cave to kind of get away. It was too, too big of a crowd. He was a priest. Most of these guys, most monastics, then and now, are lay people. And it might surprise you to realize that the monastic communities continue, not just in the Catholic Church or the Orthodox Church. There are Protestant monastic communities. There are Methodist monastic communities. People who come together and live in community and focus on this same sort of a lifestyle. And, and because they find that that's what they need. So John the Dwarf was a priest, unlike most of them. One of my other favorites. And this is one you got to kind of think about. <coughs> it was said of... <coughs> oh, excuse me. It was said of John the Dwarf that he withdrew and lived in the desert at Sedus with an old man of Thebes. His Abba, taking a piece of dry wood, planted it and said to him, Water it every day with a bottle of water until it bears fruit. Now the water was so far away that he had to leave in the evening and return the following morning. At the end of three years, the wood came to life and bore fruit. The old man took some of the fruit and carried it to the church, saying to the brethren, Take and eat the fruit of obedience. It's about perseverance. It's about sticking with what we're asked to do, whether or not it's A, easy, or B, showing results right now. Right? 
this makes me think of lots of things. It makes me think of, of the stories that, that I've shared with y'all in the past about my great-great-grandparents in Africa who said, you know, we're going to go and we're going to do our thing, but it may be a hundred years before we see results. But now there's big results. So this is, this is a great story. This is another one. I think, I think John must have had just a real right attitude about things. Some, men, some old men were entertaining themselves at Setus by having a meal together, and among them was Abba John. A venerable priest got up to offer drink, but nobody accepted any from him, except John the Dwarf. They were surprised and said to him, How is it that you, the youngest, dare to let yourself be served by the priest? Then he says, When I get up to offer drink, I'm glad when everyone accepts it. Since I'm receiving my reward, that's the reason then that I accepted it from him so that he also might gain his reward and not be grieved by seeing that no one had accepted anything from him. When they heard this, they were all filled with wonder at his, his edification and edification at his discretion. So this is one of those, this leads into that whole idea that we'll talk about next week around humility. Humility is not, oh, I'm not worthy. It's, it's understanding how I can relate to other people to show love to them. One of the things my mom always talked to me about when I was a little kid was not just, yeah, it's better to give than receive, but if you're going to receive, be a gracious recipient because in doing that, you're allowing the giver to have the joy of giving. Right? When you refuse everything, oh, I can't, I can't, I can't take your help, then you're setting yourself up. Part of, part of why do they sit in their cell? They sit in their cell and say, why is it that I'm having a hard time with that? Am I being proud? Am I, am I saying, no, no, I can do it myself? Or what is it that's keeping me from accepting the love that these people are giving? And how does that all kind of tie together? Macarius, Macarius the Great, Macarius the Egyptian, um, he was a camel driver. He was a, he was a solitary. Um, Macarius was asked, how should one pray? The old man said, there's no need at all to make long discourses. It's enough to stretch out one's hands and say, Lord, as you will and as you know, have mercy. And if the conflict grows fiercer, say, Lord, help. He knows very well what we need and shows us mercy. Because if, and, and then, so, because if we do go into all these words, what am I doing? I'm showing off a lot of times. I'm distracting myself from the real focus. I can be simple and be genuine and, and express my needs to the Lord. Papnutheus, the disciple of Macarius, said, I asked my father to say a word to me, and he replied, Do no evil to anyone, and do not judge anyone. Do this, and you'll be saved. Judgment, we'll see, gets a, is a big thing for them as well. Moses was another famous one. Moses was an Ethiopian. He was a robber uh, near the Nile Delta. He was, he was bad news. Bad news all around. Uh, he was known for his great strength and, and for just being a bad guy. He was eventually martyred by the, by, by the barbarians. Uh, a brother at Sedis committed a fault. This is one of my favorites as well. A council was called to which Abba Moses was invited, but he refused to go to it. <clears throat> the priest sent someone to say to him, Come for everyone's waiting for you. So he got up and went. <clears throat> he took a leaking jug and filled it with water and carried it with him. <clears throat> the others came out to meet him and said, What is this, Father? The old man said to them, My sins run out behind me, and I do not see them. And today I am coming to judge the errors of a brother. When they heard this, they said no more to the brother, 
but forgave him. Right? He's kind of like that take the log out of your own eye before you go take the speck out of somebody else's. A brother came to set us to visit Abba Moses and asked him for a word. The old man said to him, Go sit in your cell and your cell will tell you everything. We saw this already. And this is, this is that, that focus. Think about what you're doing. Think about why you're doing it. And then do the next thing. Poeman. Poeman. So nobody knows was Poeman a person or was Poeman a whole collection of people because it's kind of a generic name. Um, it was said of Abba Poeman that every time he prepared to go to Synaxis, that is to say, worship, their worship together, he sat alone and examined his thoughts for about an hour and then set off. He prepared himself to enter the presence of God and to worship God. He didn't just come dashing in, right? <coughs> a brother questioned Abba Poeman and said, if I see my brother committing a sin, is it right to conceal it? The old man said to him, at the very moment when we hide our brother's fault, God hides our own, and at the moment when we reveal our brother's fault, God reveals ours too. Judgment was a huge, huge, mondo, big time thing to these guys. About, am I being judgmental? Am I condemning you for something? Uh, am I taking the place of God and doing that, and therefore being prideful? So, this kind of gives you a real quick snippet of these people, of, of the, the, the little tiny bits of how they thought. Right? They went to the desert to try to work out how do I live this life? How do I love God? How do I continue in prayer? How do I love other people? How do I love myself? Sometimes they did it alone. Sometimes they did it in community. But always they used that time of <clears throat> solitude and contemplation either way. And their goal whether they said it or not you'll notice the word love never came up in one of those quotes never came up the presumption was this is what you're working on right you're working on how can I love God how can I love God how can I love other people how can I love myself so I don't have to say that over and over I don't have to say well in order for you to love God therefore I can say this is what you need and it's not saying oh I know what you need it's here's what I see because we're able to share within this context of love. Right? They could be open and truthful with each other about their shortcomings, about their needs, and about what they saw in each other because it was within this context of how can I love God fully? How can I be the person that I'm called to be by loving myself and loving other people? And they relied on, on that relationship. They relied on that relationship of those who had tread that road before them. And we call those accountability groups. Absolutely, absolutely. Accountability groups and accountability partners, yes. They set the groundwork for the stuff that we do today. So this kind of gives you a touch on what we're going to talk about next week. We'll talk about how they viewed love and humility, and then we'll move on into prayer and, and what they were really looking for. Questions? Discussion? Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. Right, yeah. And, and so, so I, I guess it's important to realize that even though, so we, we, we think about the time of Constantine is when Christianity became the official religion, you know, the, the official sponsoring religion of the Roman Empire, right? And they put, start putting stickers on their cars and stuff. 
Um, but, but just because it wasn't condoned and just because it was officially illegal doesn't mean the church hadn't grown an awful lot. Okay, there were there were large Christian centers. Yeah, yeah, we've gone from we've gone from Jerusalem and Judea and into the diaspora. Alexandria had been built in Alexandria in Egypt had become a big Christian center, and that, that's where you find a lot, a lot of these. This thought comes out of Alexandria, and in fact, within within the, the Eastern Church, the Orthodox side of, of Christianity, they viewed Alexandria in a whole lot higher esteem than Rome as the center of the church. It was it was one of the five main patriarchates, whereas Rome was a lower one. And, but then Rome became bigger as it became a bigger place, right? But yeah, these are absolutely folks who were who were going. Uh, they were part of the Christian Church. They were they were outside of Palestine. Eventually the, the monastic movement moved back into Palestine in like the sixth century. But but um yeah these were these were folks who, who, who had been I mean Augustine came from that same area, the North Africa area. So these these were again they came out of Palestine into to the diaspora and Christianity went with them. Just like Alexandria became a huge center of Judaism. Right, as people as as the Romans kind of destroyed Jerusalem, right, and everybody left, and there's where things started moving out from there. Yeah. It seems like me they put an awful lot of emphasis on works and not grace. How does that fit in? So, so again, this comes back to their their. They talk about things you need to do, but it's within the context of not not the context of I need to do this to be saved. It's in order for me to work through the things in my mind to be able to understand the love and understand the salvation, I need to do something else. It's not a works-based thing. They were, so this is one of the reasons that I think that, that you see so many ties between their thought and Wesley is that, that they really did, they didn't, they didn't talk about grace, they didn't talk about love, they didn't, they didn't talk about salvation. Because it was implicit. This is what you're, looking, you're, you're working towards. But you might need to do something in yourself, and maybe doing some works will help you to work out in yourself what's keeping your mind from accepting it. Um, so they didn't view that the works were the things that saved me when I go and pray continuously or when I go and do acts of charity. Those are the consequence of the love, not the, not the, the, the thing that leads into it. Right. And because they're not explicit in, in saying what comes first, we sometimes take that path because we're not, we're not taking their bigger context. Yeah, they were, they were not works-based. Their, their notion was not about works. It was all about salvation as a gift and then how can I respond to that gift. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So did they have did they have scripture? Yeah. So this is the time when the canon is coming together. They probably didn't have, you know, their pocket copy of, of the NIV. But but they would have something. Different monasteries might have different subsets of books that they had. 
individuals might have books, right? But probably not much. Um, and and as they would interact with each other, as they would travel, they would they would see more, right? Because remember that that it wasn't. It was, this is right around the same time when when Athanasius sets down the canon in in, in 369, right? So it seems like they're working awfully hard to get grace. They're working awfully hard as a result of having received grace. They're not working to get it. They're working out of gratitude and as a response. Yeah. Well, there, there's so there's some of both. There's some of both of that going on. On the one hand, they tried to get rid of the things in their life that got in the way. Okay, and and so we'll see that that they said, okay, so if I'm to pray continuously, I probably don't need to be sitting around on my rear all the time. And so the things that they would do might would seem more aesthetic to us, right? So they would they would not eat much. They 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 felt like fasting was a big thing at this point of time. Now there were some of them who would go and, and go overboard and would go for huge, huge, huge fasts for amazing periods of time and 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 the rest of them would look at them going, So what are you trying to make everybody look at you? You know, and, and they would view that these extreme aesthetic things circled back around to pride. But they also would try to get rid of in their life the things that they got in the way. If I spend all of my time chasing after what's the new cool thing to eat, that gets in the way. Okay, That gets in the way of me being able to focus on other people's needs and to focus on God. So aestheticism is part of it, but charity is also part of it. And, and the communities and the individuals didn't let anybody go past that, that needed help, they didn't help. Now, as things go along and as things become official and as as monasteries become more established and larger and, oh, by the way, richer, they become more outpouring and you find the orders being created in the 6th, 7th, 8th centuries. You get into Benedict who has the rules and and you find the different groups that, that are really focused on, some are focused on preaching, some are focused on giving, some are focused on ministering. These guys do precede all of that. They're still trying to work it out. Aestheticism, that, that getting rid of the extras is a big part of it. But it's, it's not... The hard part with these guys all along is figuring out what's in front and what's behind. What's cause and what's effect. Because as they write about it, they are always writing about the effect, the thing, the work. <laughs> because of course you're going to be doing your course. Your mindset is always going to be within the context of of the cause. So, so we who are sitting with just their writings miss the whole world that they're writing from. Right. So that's that's the important part is to, is to, to get the right direction. Next week. Last one. Okay. Um, did the um, desert monasteries have any effect on European monasteries? 
Yeah, eventually. Yeah, yeah, and they're actually built out of it. The same model. Yeah, yeah, but it, you know, it took another 500 years. It took another 500 years. Cool. I've run all. I always wrong. I'm sorry. Um, let's close with prayer. Let's close. Gracious Lord, we do thank you so much for bringing us together today. Today, we thank you so much for giving us a chance to to learn not just today, but every century, every year, over the years, from those people, not just the monks, but all of those other people that have, have really seriously taken your challenge to, to how can I live out the, the commandments that you've given to us to, to love you, to love each other, and to love ourselves since we are created, your creation created in your image. How can we, how can we live that out? Help us to, to struggle with that. Help us to live that every day. Be with us as we go from here. Bring us together as we continue to learn and to grow in your grace. All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank <laughs> you.